Hello, I'm Kate Chabot and this is SITREP. This week, Afghanistan has been hit by a recent increase in attacks by Taliban and other militants, and now coronavirus is spreading in the country. What will these developments mean for the UK forces there? We'll be hearing from a troop commander in Kabul on the precautions they're taking against the disease. So we just ensure that um, to protect the force, we're, we're keeping our distance from one another. Like in the UK, we're keeping a record of everyone we're coming into contact with. Um, such that if there was a case of coronavirus, we can effectively uh, contain it. It's all change at the top of Whitehall. The Prime Minister is to get a new national security advisor. But what will be the impact of the move? One former Prime Minister is worried. Why then is the new national security advisor a political appointee with no proven expertise in national security? Defence analyst Professor Michael Clark joins us to unpick the changes. And searching for the right words, we hear about the work being done to find fitting inscriptions for the gravestones of soldiers whose remains have recently been identified. But first... Doctors in Afghanistan are warning that health services are struggling to cope with cases of coronavirus. More than 30,000 infections have been recorded so far, but the level of testing is low and close to half of all tests have been positive. Meanwhile, the country is suffering from continuing violence with attacks from the Taliban and other militants. There are around 1,000 UK troops currently deployed in Afghanistan. Lieutenant Tom Redman is a task line commander with the 4th Battalion, the Royal Regiment of Scotland. I asked him first what his troops' role had been since arriving in Afghanistan. We've been here a number of months now and we've deployed as part of the Kabul Security Force. So principally we're concerned with assisting the government of Afghanistan as they provide security within Kabul. And what has been the impact of COVID-19 on your deployment? So it didn't affect our pre-deployment training. We were lucky we got that completed prior to uh, coronavirus really reaching its height in the United Kingdom. On deployment, uh, we're taking the same measures that everyone in the UK is taking. We're keeping our uh, two-metre distance. Hygiene is is taking on new prominence. We're wiping down surfaces regularly. Um, We're just trying to protect the force so that we don't diminish the quality of our outputs. So typically, how does that affect you on a day-to-day basis with the people you come into contact with? So we just ensure that um, to protect the force, we're, we're keeping our distance from one another. Like in the UK, we're keeping a record of everyone we're coming into contact with, um, such that if there was a case of coronavirus, we can effectively uh, contain it. Are there any particular challenges? Though? I mean, you, keep, you say that you're using the same kind of precautions that are used in the UK, but given the kind of conditions you're working in, given the fact you're working in Afghanistan, are there any particular challenges of this tour due to COVID-19 that are different, perhaps? I think the army is very good at dealing with risk, and it's just become part of our training. For example, one of my team medics in my multiple has now done a covid module, if you will. And so he is better able to to deal with uh, incidents of COVID and health treatment. We have taken the preventative measures to ensure that we don't spread or lead to any type of uh, diminishment of our capability. And has there been any impact on the welfare of troops as a result of the pandemic? Well, thankfully, we've got uh, Wi-Fi. <laughs> it generally works quite well. Um, And we also got a very good post service. So actually, 
uh, the army has made sure that we've continued to be well provided for um, in terms of welfare. My soldiers have particularly enjoyed getting parcels from home, from family, from friends. Um, so we've been well looked after and we've got a very good med team here as well, along with um, a padre who uh, continues to, to check on us all regularly and ensure that everyone is healthy, both physically and mentally. There's been an increase in violence recently. How has this affected your tour? We continue to provide our output and we continue to respond and support the government of Afghanistan. So there's been no real change, no change to our capability. And we ensure that our skills and drills and training are to the highest level and such that we are best able to provide support to the government of Afghanistan. You've been talking about the impact of COVID-19 on your deployment. How has it affected you and your troops in relation to thinking about families and friends at home? Because it must be difficult knowing that they too are going through difficult times because of the pandemic. Yes, absolutely. And um, it's been really important that my service personnel continually speak and engage with their family. And, and we've been able to do that. So they feel in close connection with them. Um, and that helps a lot. We have a very good welfare team, backup battalion, that are always on hand to deal with families and assist as best possible. I guess this is going to be the tour that you're never going to forget. Well, yes, and um, it's my first tour. It's a couple of my soldiers' first tour. Um, we trained very hard for this, and it was great to come here and to uh, effectively achieve our objective, which is get here and uh, deploy in good order and be able to meet the challenges that, um, of this tour. And we've been able to do that successfully. So, yes, it's strange circumstances, um, but we just have to continue to uphold professionalism at all times. Lieutenant Tom Redman there. Meanwhile, the White House is under pressure to explain what the administration knew about allegations in some US media outlets that Russia offered the Taliban bounties to kill US troops. President Donald Trump says he was never briefed and it's all a hoax. Russia denied the reports, calling them fake news, while the Taliban said the accusations were baseless. The Defence Secretary Ben Wallace was asked about the newspaper reports when he spoke to the Defence Select Committee this week. We don't comment on the intelligence itself, we just take the steps. And it is absolutely the case that we have seen that countries like Russia and Russia in itself have taken lots of malign activity against us. Salisbury is the most recent obvious example, but uh, as a state it is involved in a whole range of activities against its adversaries that we deem to be unacceptable. Well, Professor Michael Clark is a former Director General of the Royal United Services Institute. He joins us now with our Defence Analyst, Christopher Lee. Uh, Michael Clark, there have been denials all around on this story. How would you describe Russia's strategy as far as Afghanistan is concerned? Well, I don't really believe the denials. I mean, I remember this story circulating years ago when I was in and out of Afghanistan a few times. Um, and it was entirely plausible at the time that the, the, the Russians took a great interest in the difficulties that the coalition was having right through to the withdrawal in, of, of, of the combat phase in 2014. And it was, it was sort of open knowledge that they had links with the, uh, the Taliban, that the Russian intelligence did. And the idea that they were encouraging the Taliban to mount attacks on coalition forces as and when they could was accepted conventional wisdom. So I don't really know what's different about these particular allegations. It's been going on for a long time. Mm, Christopher, the United States is reducing the number of its troops in the country as part of the deal with the Taliban, but there's no overall political settlement as yet. It can't be a political settlement till people find something that which agrees with them. You only get a settlement for two reasons. 
One is that it reflects the state of the relationship between the two sides at the time of signing. And that can, with Taliban, that can change in a fortnight. The other way of doing it is you, you, you've got some outside source which says, that's what we want, that's what we're aiming for. And at the moment, there is no sign that any agreement uh, signs up for anything that both sides are, are aiming for. You can say, well, they're aiming for it, reduce uh, attacks. You can only do that if, if, for example, in Taliban, you've got absolute control of all your people. You won't get some group in a, another village uh, go off and do a, a freelance job. Michael Clark, really there's been very little progress as far as any lasting peace in Afghanistan is concerned. Yes, we, we were hoping in 2014 when the alliance uh, as we stepped right down from the combat phase, that the Taliban might have been ready for a deal for all sorts of reasons. They were you know, Taliban leaders were getting older. They realised that they couldn't ever control the country completely. They might, and they were looking for some sort of deal. And the, of course, you know, talks were going on in Doha quietly and secretly between uh, the United States and the Taliban. And the and what the US has, has done is, in a sense tell the Afghan government, right, the Taliban are in a position, now you've got to settle. But the Afghan government dug its toes in a little bit. The Taliban have uh, also gone back on where they were about a year ago in terms of their ability to settle and their willingness. And also remember, the Taliban are now also fighting an, a, a three-cornered struggle with Islamic State who have established themselves in Afghanistan and are trying now to represent that radical side of of, of Afghan politics, the side that wants no truck with the government in Kabul. So the situation has become, again, very confused. And it looks as if this grumbling civil war that is so appalling for the people of Afghanistan will just go on without any useful involvement from the Western powers. That's the road that we're now on. Now, also this week, we've heard that Australia is to increase defence spending by 40% over the next 10 years, with the Prime Minister warning they have to prepare for a post-COVID world, which he says will be poorer, more dangerous and more disorderly. Do you agree with that, Michael Clark? Yes, sadly, we've been doing quite a lot of work uh, variously on, on the sort of things that the, thing, the changes that COVID will make to our world. And in some cases, you can see that the COVID crisis will exacerbate existing trends, such as the, uh, the antagonism between the United States and China. And, but there are also new trends that COVID is creating, such as the enormous economic impact on the emergent economies. You know, world growth for 20 years has been dependent on the emergent economies. And they are now bearing the brunt both of the public health crisis which is much worse for them than it's been for us over the last six or eight months, and the economic fallout that follows from it. So sadly, the world that we're going into is going to be much more chaotic and disordered. And the, the big powers, I mean, Russia and China are both, although they're both suffering with COVID, are, both, are also both trying to take advantage of the chaos, uh, as we see with you know China in relation to Hong Kong and saber rattling in Taiwan, Russia uh, in some of its policies in uh, the Mediterranean and in Libya is interested in making the most of this period of, of chaos in Western decision-making because the West is more divided politically at the moment than ever before, divided and distracted, and that's a real problem. All right, gentlemen, stay with us. The papers and airwaves this week have been full of the decision to install a new national security adviser in Whitehall. Although an experienced diplomat and a former Brexit negotiator, David Frost does not have a particular background in security and intelligence, unlike his predecessor, Sir Mark Sedwell. The decision was criticised in the House of Commons by the former Prime Minister, Theresa May. I served on the National Security Council for nine years, six years as Home Secretary and three as Prime Minister. During that time, I listened 
to the expert independent advice from national security advisers. On Saturday, my right honourable friend said, we must be able to promote those with proven expertise. Why then is the new national security advisor a political appointee with no proven expertise in national security? But the move was defended by the Cabinet Minister, Michael Gove. We have had previous national security advisers, all of them excellent, uh, not all of them necessarily people who were steeped in the security world, some of whom were distinguished diplomats in their own right. So David, sorry, David Frost is a distinguished diplomat in his own right, and it is entirely appropriate that the Prime Minister of the day should choose an adviser appropriate to the needs of the hour. Well, Sir Mark Sadwell, who also has the security adviser role, is to stand down as the UK's top civil servant in September. Labour have said the Prime Minister should focus on the economic crisis facing the country rather than what they described as moving out top officials. Professor Michael Clark, can you set out for us what the National Security Adviser actually does? It's the person who presides over the National Security Council, which is the liaison body, and, and the National Security Adviser is the person who, as it were, drives this mechanism and the idea of the national security advisor it's not based on the american system which where kissinger of course was the first national security advisor formally to richard nixon and he was a very very political uh, animal and he was there for that reason the british national security advisor has always been a civil servant whose job was liaison and impartial advice christopher what, what do you think about the announcement of this appointment well i'm not quite sure why the person has to be steeped in let's say security it could be that next year's uh, review will actually have far more to do with what the British government wants in its foreign policy and what, therefore, it wants the Defence Ministry in terms of hardware and ability that it can guarantee that part of foreign policy. And in, in many ways that uh, Mr Frost has, has got this. The system will, will work to give the Prime Minister independent advice. But undoubtedly, with David Frost as National Security Advisor, he will, as it were, interpret that in a way that is politically closer to his boss. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it is different. Um, because what you what we can see is that Downing Street is really lining up a, a, a really tight knit group of people to push through what they want to do. So it's you know it's Boris Johnson, Michael Gove, Dominic Cummings, and now David Frost. And there's this little group of people who are being deliberately recruited maybe for the good, maybe not, to actually uh, not sideline Whitehall, but to drive Whitehall in a way that is is not necessarily consensual. And we'll see if it works or not. Professor Michael Clark, thank you very much for your time today. This is Zitrap. Now, throughout this week, BFBS has been looking at the subject of mental health among forces families. The Mind Kind initiative will culminate in a Facebook Live forum tomorrow with experts at hand to offer help and support. John Knighton reports. Mental health, so often in the past a taboo subject, not anymore. It's recognised by the MOD as a vital area of support among serving personnel and veterans who can be 30% more at risk than the general population of developing a mental health condition. But what about the families? They used to just follow me everywhere, constantly, all the time. Katie Broomfield married her army officer husband not long after he suffered serious injury in Afghanistan 10 years ago, injuries from which he subsequently recovered. 
But since then, she's faced a succession of mental health challenges, in part a result of army life, constant moving, isolation, emotional stress and issues with her children's well-being. Moving somewhere, trying to get settled and, and meeting people, and you've got this sort of six-month window of meeting people and getting settled, finding the shops, getting the kids into school, making friends, and you've got kind of a year of being settled and being really happy. You know, then you get told where you're moving and you almost kind of stop living where you're living in order to kind of emotionally connect to where you're moving to and it's that kind of thing that I think is really just quite challenging. We have been through some real challenges. Um, we, around my husband's injury we had the most incredible support, it was, it was fantastic. Um, but sub sub following that we've had um, pregnancy loss, we've had um, you know, deaths in the family, we've had things like that that we've had to deal with and, and for some of those we've been in somewhere where we've just moved to and we don't know anybody. It, it really drives home how kind of isolating this can be sometimes. There's a raft of research being undertaken into military mental health issues and the NHS has launched an engagement exercise about how to support forces families better. For the past two years, the military charity Combat Stress has been researching effects of PTSD among veterans and their families in their Together programme, led by their head of research, Dr Dominic Murphy. We wanted to look at not just the needs of the veteran, but those living alongside veterans' mental health difficulties. Now, the original aim was to understand, kind of, originally, are people who live alongside veterans at increased risk of developing their own mental health difficulties? If so, what kind of support might they like? What were they requesting? And then the third aim was really about if we find that need, that evidence that there's a need for that support, developing and then piloting an intervention program to help support that group. One of the biggest obstacles is that military partners are often reluctant to admit there is a mental health issue, either with their serving loved one or themselves. Bridget Middleton is Evidence Director for Education, Families and Mental Health for the Navy Families Federation. Generally our families are incredibly um, resourceful and amazing in what they do but you know life happens to all of us you know and it's not it's not it's not anybody's fault when they need support or help. It's not that anybody's done anything wrong. It's just that if you live for long enough, stuff's going to happen. And you, you, you know, and there is absolutely no shame in reaching out for help. And I think our families can sometimes find that really hard to do. The MOD say they're committed to providing as much support as they can, both in constant scrutiny of practice and in practical help for families. Director of MOD Armed Forces People Policy is Helen Hellowell. We know that armed forces spouses particularly tend to put the health and well-being of their families first before their own and I think they're trying to juggle the care of others and they put themselves last so perhaps don't seek help as early as they should do but of course to be the best version of yourself and to really support your family and, and defence uh, we need you to be as mentally fit and physically fit as, as possible so that's why we urge people to go and go and get that support that's out there. There's some fantastic ones out there. Do you think that there is a, a fundamental problem with the military lifestyle that brings mental health issues to the fore? Or are we just reflecting what's going on in wider society? So I do think we are reflecting what's going on in wider society, but there are unique challenges with armed forces. So I think we've got to make sure that we, we're providing the right, right balance of, of support, all about trying to keep families together and have that balance between the needs of defence and the needs of our, our families. No one pretends there are solutions to all the issues associated with military life that can lead to mental health problems. 
but the vital first step for anyone suffering is to talk about it with people who can help. John Knighton reporting there, and there's more help and support on our website, forces.net. Now, the lockdown in Leicester this week has again highlighted the importance of testing for COVID-19. Now, extra military personnel are being brought in to help more than double the number of mobile testing units in the UK. The Ministry of Defence says more than 1,700 personnel will support more than 230 units, up from just 100 in April. Brigadier Lizzie Faithful-Davis, commanding officer of 102 Logistic Brigade, says they're working closely with councils and directors of public health. Uh, We've already started this next phase of the rollout and the uplift, uh, and I think uh, we've been able to manage it in a a slightly more controlled manner um, by with better engagement with the local authorities and the DPHs. Um, So I think that this is is a more manageable uplift than the initial programme where we started from absolutely nothing and had to design and deliver a new capability within just a couple of weeks. And who decides when and where the units deploy and what information is that based on? We have worked increasingly to ensure that the directors of public health, as part of their outbreak plans, have the ability to control uh, testing um, and deliver mobile testing where it needs to be. So regional coordination groups will request uh, a mobile testing unit to go to a certain location in consultation with their DPH. We will then do all the administration that sits behind it to make sure that a mobile testing unit turns up at the right place at the right time with the crew. And that information, that deployment can be very short notice, can't it? Sometimes, yeah. That's uh, one of the main purposes of the mobile testing units is that they can move more quickly to locations that are are more difficult to reach. Uh, So normally our troops are held at 12 hours notice to move. So if we can uh, know where we need to send them the night before, normally they can be in a new location uh, the next day. It's a fine balance between managing um, pre-programmed testing where people will have already booked from the evening before, but we do hold a number of units in reserve so that that they can be deployed at short notice uh, if there's an urgent need. And just very briefly, it's a very different front line than any soldier expected. How do they view what they're doing? I think for the soldiers, it's been quite a rewarding task. It's something very different from anything they've ever had to do before. But we've had over 20,000 soldiers and military personnel at readiness for the coronavirus crisis. And really, I think for most soldiers, to be doing something is better than doing nothing. And I think with the mobile testing units and the support to the regional test sites as well, where they've been able to physically do something, during this crisis, they felt they'd been able to contribute in a small way uh, to helping the general public. That was Brigadier Lizzie Faithful-Davis. Now for the latest in our series of reports on how different countries are dealing with the pandemic, we hear from our colleague Binatos Gurkha, the station manager of BFBS Gurkha Radio in Nepal. It is 100 days since the official lockdown began in Nepal and day-to-day life is far from normal. The largest contribution to the economy comes from tourism, and that is in total chaos. Hundreds of hotels, big and small, are all empty. Travel-related business are all closed, with many unemployed. The latest data on COVID-19 infection in the country is just over 14,000, with 30 deaths. As per British Gurkha's Nepal personnel, some 33 dependents have moved to the UK since the outbreak and are staying in Lark Hill. Serving military personnel have been restricted inside the camp with limited mess opening hours. All the civilian staff are asked to stay home. Those living in camp area engage themselves in sports like 
badminton and tennis, avoiding contact sports like football, for example. All the restaurants and bars in Kathmandu Valley are shut, although there are some restaurants with home delivery service. There's no sign of public places opening. The government has extended the lockdown to July 22nd and there are no scheduled flights to and from the country apart from some special charter flights. The annual recruitment process of young Gurkhas into the British Army is a year-long process which has been severely affected so far by the strict measures on the movement of personnel, gatherings and vehicles and is unprecedented in the 204-year history of Gurkha recruiting. The situation in Nepal there. Now, it's 104 years this week since the Battle of the Somme in which the poet Hugh Stuart Smith died. This is one of his poems read here by the author Michael Morpurgo. On the plains of Picardy lay a soldier dying gallantly, with soul still free, spite the rough world's trying. Came the angel who keeps guard when the fight has drifted. What would you for your reward when the clouds have lifted? Then the soldier through the mist heard the voice and rested as a man who sees his home when the hill is breasted. This his answer, and I vow nothing could be fitter. Give me peace, a dog, a friend, and a glass of bitter. Well, families are still being contacted to say the remains of their relatives have been identified from the battlefields of Western Europe and elsewhere. And that leads to the question for their families, what are the most fitting words to put on their gravestones? Well, Peter Francis works for the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. Earlier, I asked him whether better research methods were leading to more people being identified. It is that availability of records, so being able to kind of cross-reference records online now. So if you, if you get a slight clue as to who that individual might be, perhaps a, a rank or a regiment, you can start to work out perhaps a, a potential pool of names. And of course, advances in things like DNA. Um, you know, DNA isn't the holy grail that everybody thinks it is. It's, it does need other avenues to explore before it kind of reveals an identity. But certainly the advancements in science and technology have made a big difference to the success rate in naming First World War and Second World War war dead. And how does the process of finding the right inscription work? Because the Commission has always allowed families to add an epitaph to the headstones, haven't they? Yeah, we have, because it's it's part of that process that enables them to feel very much involved in, in the case and in the commemoration of that individual. And it must be really difficult for a family, for a modern family who may not have known the individual personally, to come up with a, a line of words that is quite strict, actually. It's a maximum of four lines of text, fewer characters than Twitter. Um, we also ask that the text itself is in context, so you can't use modern song lyrics, for example, or refer to you know next of kin that he would never have known. Um, but we do give them some guidance, and it's really interesting to see how different the person inscriptions are between uh, the First World War, where they tend to be perhaps more religious, um, Second World War, where they start to get a little bit more personal, a little bit more intimate, and dare would say it caused a few tears every time I walk around one of our cemeteries. Well, what, what kind of words are chosen, and how do the relatives actually choose them? Uh, well, we actually use a process that stood the test of time. So after the First World War, we wrote to the last known address of next of kin, and we sent them what's called a, a final verification form, FV form. 
and it asks them to check some certain details about their loved one, uh, but it also allows them to choose a religious symbol uh, but, and the personal inscription. And originally it was charged for, uh, but if you couldn't pay, the commission still did it anyway. Very, very Commonwealth Wargraves Commission. Uh, if we had a rule somewhere, we've broken it. And although we had these strict guidelines, we did try and do what the family wanted us to do. So for example, on the grave of a young musician in a war cemetery in Belgium, it's actually a bar of music hmm. uh, rather than words on his headstone. And we've never been able to quite work out what the bar of music is. We think it might be after the ball is over, but we're not entirely sure. Um, we've had, you know, some of the inscriptions themselves are incredibly moving. There's a, one of my particular favorites is for a, a young airman uh, who's buried here in the United Kingdom. And it's taken from his last letter home. And it says, mother, I'm aware of the risks, but I prefer them to living in a world dominated by Nazis. Mm -hmm. Immediately you get a sense of what that young man must have been like. And it just makes me very, very proud that we still remember him. That was Peter Francis. And our defence analyst, Christopher Lee, was listening to that. Christopher, it must be very hard to find the right words. Remember, it's the people who are left, people who are maybe two or three generations on, what have they put on? Siegfried Sassoon, in his war poem of the First World War, he was talking about dreamers, and he says soldiers are dreamers when the guns begin. They think of filet homes, clean beds and wives, dreaming of things they did with balls and bats and mocked by hopeless longing to regain bank holidays, picture shows and spats, and going to the office in the train. And on that note, we shall leave it for this week. My thanks to Christopher and to all of this week's guests. Don't forget, you can get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And at bfbs.com slash SITREP, you can listen back to past episodes and subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, I'm Kate Chabot. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>